chapter 25 is where I'd invite you to turn this morning. Uh, If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, there is one in the chair in front of you, and it's page 831 in that blue Bible, page 831. This is uh, part three in the series of messages on Matthew 24, 25. This is not a series on prophecy. This is a series on Matthew 24 and 25, which speaks about prophetic events. And this morning's message is what happens when the king returns? What happens when the king returns? Now, in each message, I have tried to remind you of a couple things. And the old school says repetition is what class? The mother of learning. So if you repeat it enough, it finally kind of gets, starts getting in. And the one phrase I've repeated to you is examine current events in light of biblical prophecy. Do not read biblical prophecy into current events. As I've said, that's not a tongue twister. That's a wise advice for you. If you flip it, I promise you, you will get into trouble in understanding uh, God's word and what is happening. At the same time, we can't help but look around us and we see what's happening in the world, we listen to the newscasts, we read the newspapers, and so much of what we read in the newspapers, it's almost like it's what we read in the prophetic scriptures as well. So we can't help but see the connections. Pundits are using the term perfect storm to explain the confluence of events today. I was just thinking this week alone, since we met on Sunday, a volcano erupting in Hawaii, violence throughout the earth, like the school shootings in Texas, which no longer shock us, by the way. Jerusalem, the recognized capital of Israel by the United States, Iran and the nuclear deal, the North Korean summit, the economic powerhouse of China, the resurgence of Russia, and the list goes on. Every one of those general things I talked about as well as specific countries, it seems like when you open the scriptures, there's at least some kind of something going on. So do current headlines give us any indication about what is happening next? You and I know there is only one reliable source that we have that gives us accurate information about the future. And that's the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. And you want to pour yourself into the Bible. And then as you're wise and biblically minded and discerning, you discern the things going on around you as well. 2,000 years ago, people were curious about the future just like they are today. And some of the disciples came to Jesus after Jesus had announced the impending destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple of God there. The disciples came to him and said, when are these things going to be? And what shall be the sign of your coming, even of the end of the age? And so 
the Lord Jesus Christ sitting on the Mount of Olives begins explaining. And as we saw two weeks ago, he gave signs, and that's in Matthew 24, 1 to 28. And we picked out 10 signs, and one in particular that happens in the middle of the tribulation called the abomination of desolation. When the person named by the Apostle John as the Antichrist begins his ascendancy of the political ruler, dictator of the entire world. And then last week we saw the second coming itself, when Jesus Christ comes back to earth and his feet light upon the very Mount of Olives from which he is giving uh, this discourse here. Now this morning we want to answer the question, what happens when the king returns? What happens when the king returns? Now I need to repeat that in order to properly understand Matthew 24 and 25, at least as to my understanding, that there are three things you must keep before you. And it is my opinion, if you don't know these three different facts here, you're going to get in trouble in your interpretation uh, of what Jesus is saying. Israel is in view, not the church. The tribulation period is in view, not the age in which we're living, the church age. And the revelation, the second coming of Christ to earth is in view and not the rapture. So if a person says, well, are we studying the rapture or do these events here have to do with what has taken place around us? My answer to you is no, in the very specific interpretive sense. Keep in mind also, it is okay as long as you give an correct interpretation of a verse, you have liberty to make several applications with it. We do it here all the time. But the key is to make sure we give the intent of the Holy Spirit as these words were given by the Lord Jesus Christ and inspired into the, uh, into the holy writings. And so if you look at the chart in, in your bulletin this morning for just a moment, um, you're, you're going to see what we have in mind here. And uh, just uh, turn to the chart, if you would, and you'll see the series of events uh, that is going on. Uh, before we actually uh, uh, look at that, when we say that the title of the message is What Happens When the King Returns, the answer to that question is the judgment of the nations. So you could really call the title of this message uh, not only what happens when the king returns, but that's the question. The answer is uh, the judgment of the nation. And it's been difficult to read these verses here that we're going to read without a sense of seeing the kind of priority that the scriptures give to this judgment. The name of our Lord Jesus Christ for 2,000 years has been cursed, blasphemed, mocked, and it looks as though Satan has had a rule over the nations. All we have to do is look around us and we see that it seems that the God of this age is the one who, to whom people are bowing. And men have gotten away with their sin and rebellion. But then that key verse in verse 31 of Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on the right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. The righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, feed you thirsty, give you drink? When did we see you a stranger, welcome you naked, clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. I say it to you as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Now we'll finish the rest of that chapter a little bit later on in the text. But I want us to look first of all at this matter of the place of the judgment, the place of the judgment. And here I'm referring to the chronology of events as well as the actual location or place where the judgment takes place. When you look at the chronology of the judgment, the time of the judgment is clearly stated as immediately after the second coming of Christ to earth. And it seems to me the key words in verse 31 are when and then. When the Son of Man comes, then at that time he'll sit upon the throne of his glory and before him all the nations will be gathered. So when you look at the chart in your bolt, you can see the timeline. And we are in that space that is left of the green arrow. So you've got the cross, the resurrection, ascension, and then you have the day of Pentecost that begins the church age. And for 2,000 years, Christ has been building his church. And we know at some time with that green arrow, Christ is coming in the clouds and the dead in Christ shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That will leave behind all people who do not know the Lord. At that same time, or very soon thereafter, that man of peace, who becomes the one known as the Antichrist, signs a covenant with Israel in fulfillment of Daniel 9, 24 to 27, which is the 70th week of Daniel. 69 weeks have been fulfilled of years 483. One week remains, that's seven years long. And in this seven-year period of time, he signs a covenant and he promises as a strong military leader to protect Israel from all her surrounding enemies. And so if you read the prophetic scriptures written 2,500 years ago, you'll see that Israel is living in peace. They don't have any locks on their doors. They don't have any walled villages. They're living at peace. And in, after three and a half years, that same one who signed the peace treaty with them breaks the peace treaty, and that's that red icon up there. And so he breaks the treaty, and now the one who has promised peace to Israel begins an all-out assault to attempt to annihilate Israel. And that's where Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, Mark uses a masculine pronoun, by the way, so it's a man, not a thing he's talking about. When you see him, and that's when Paul says, the son of man, uh, the, the son of perdition, that he stands in the temple, demands that all Israel and the Jews worship him. Jesus said, when you see that, get out of Jerusalem 
as fast as you can because something greater even than the Holocaust is going to happen. And it happens for three and a half years. And the only reason it is, it is shortened and the only reason that it ends at that time and the only reason Israel is not annihilated is because Christ comes back as we saw last week in his second coming. So you'll notice then when that blue arrow comes down, that's Christ coming. And then immediately after the second coming of Christ, that's when you start having the judgment of the nations where, is, uh, where we are uh, today in our text of Matthew 25. Now, that's the, the chronology of it. Now, I want us to look at the location of the judgment. And this gets just a little bit, uh, a little bit maybe not so clear. In order to try and discern where the judgment takes place, you need to go to your Old Testament, the very end, just a few pages back, where you find Malachi, and then move back a little, find, you'll find Zechariah. And then move back just a few more little books in the Minor Prophets and you'll find Joel. So I want you, if you have your Bibles, to turn to Joel 3 and Zechariah 14. Now the question is this. And, and let's go ahead and read, as you can see there, Joel 3 uh, uh, verses 2 uh, and 12 because it's a fascinating scripture. Notice what 800 years, by the way, before Jesus was born is when Joel was prophesying. So we're going back now 2,800 years. So in Joel chapter 3, verse 2, notice the prophecy. I will gather all the nations. Sounds familiar to Matthew 25, doesn't it? All the nations are gathered before him. Here the prophet says, I will gather all the nations, and this is the Lord speaking, bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now that gives you kind of, uh, in plain, simple terms, where the nations will be judged. The valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. And now tuck this baby away. We'll come back to it. On behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and divided up my land. Jump down, same chapter, jump down to verse 12. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Now the question is this, whether the writer, uh, Joel, or his contemporaries knew of such a place that is called the Valley of Jehoshaphat is uncertain. If you would go to your Old Testament Hebrew lexicon, and you or Google just Valley of Jehoshaphat, what you're going to find is nowhere in Scripture is it mentioned except Joel 3, verses 2 and 12. It's not found anywhere else. And if you go and try to search it, you're going to find people will speculate it. Maybe it's this valley. Maybe it's that valley. The truth of the matter is they really don't know where it's actually located. So, and keep this in mind, Jehoshaphat, I will gather the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jeho is the shortened word for Jehovah or the Lord, Shaphat is the verb, Hebrew word, for to judge. So when you put Jehoshaphat together, it means the Lord judges. And what's he doing? He's judging the nations of the world. So where is this valley of Jehoshaphat possibly? If you turn now to Zechariah 14, that's on page 800, by the way, of your Bibles, but it'll be up on the screen uh, in front of you. We saw this last week. Notice Zechariah 14.4, which we saw last week. On that day, that is his second coming to earth, 
Christ's feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And remember I said last week, uh, class, tuck this one away. Not that I expected you to do it. And if you did, we've already forgotten it. But that's all right. We can be reminded. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west by a very wide valley. So you know where I'm going now, don't you? Since the Lord comes back on the Mount of Olives and a new valley is formed, and in that valley is going to be the judgment of the nations, is it possible or even probable that Joel's prophecy of the Valley of Jehoshaphat found nowhere else in the Scriptures is indeed that valley formed when Christ's feet light upon the Mount of Olives? It makes sense to me that it is, uh, but whether or not this is exact location is not the most important thing, uh, but rather what takes place is the important thing. So if you agree with that, fine. If you don't agree with that, I really could care less. It doesn't matter. So, uh, but what I, what I do, what does matter is to buy into what happens there, which is the judgment of the nations wherever the Valley of Jehoshaphat is, which is no doubt the valley formed by the... Okay. <laughs> Uh, enough of that nonsense. Now, let's move from the place of the judgment. And let's look at the people in the judgment. It seems to me at this judgment, it says, all nations, now we're back in Matthew 25, before him, verse 32, will be gathered all the nations. Joel said the, said the very same thing. The word for nations is the Greek word ethne. Now, can you think of an English word that comes from ethne? Ethnic. So everyone is kind of judged there by their ethnic groupings. The point is they're standing there as individuals. And in particular, the one thing we can say pretty much for certain, these are people who are the non-Jewish people alive at that time at the end of the tribulation period. So they are alive at the time of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. One Greek lexicon says, generally, ethne refers to the Gentiles as distinct from the Jews. Now, the nation of Israel has a judgment all of its own. That's another sermon in another day. This is the judgment of the non-Jewish or the Gentiles. And in particular, it's the Gentiles who are alive at the end of the tribulation period when Christ comes back to earth. Now, you'll notice those being judged are described as sheep on the right, and then the second class is goats who are on the left. Now, notice the sheep on the right. He says, Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, it's so easy to skip over that verse and just go on right down, you know, Blood, and he says, I was in prison, you visited me, I was hungry, I was, and, and to pick up on that. But don't miss verse 34 because there's a key interpretive thought, and I want you to get this because it's so important. He is inviting people into his kingdom that he is establishing at this time on what terms? And if all of the scripture you had, and you had no other scripture but Matthew 25, at uh, 31 to 46, it appears at first glance that the sheep entering the kingdom are entering that kingdom on the basis of their good deeds 
or their acts of mercy as the Roman Catholic Church termed these six acts here. In other words, as they gave food to the, to, uh, to the hungry, water uh, to the thirsty, ministered to the poor, uh, the displaced, etc., and visited those who were sick and in prison, on the acts that they performed, the good works, the good deeds, on that basis, they entered the kingdom. Now, we know from other parts of Scripture that absolutely cannot be true, but I think we can actually even see that it's not true here either in the text because there's far more to it than that. And verse 34 gives us four truths I want to point to you very quickly. Number one, that has to do with our salvation. Number one truth is the source. Now, you read verse 34 again, and it says, then the king will say to those on the right, come you who are blessed by my father. So my father is the source of the blessing. And what I think you have here implied is sovereign grace beautifully expressed. Now, as I'm studying this in the last few weeks, first thing that came to my mind was Ephesians 1. Uh, verse three to, uh, three, uh, verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in, in Christ Jesus, even as he chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world. When was this kingdom planned? Before the foundation of the world. So he chose a kingdom, and he chose the citizens of those kingdom, even as he says, back before the foundation of the world. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestinated us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So you will be coming into my kingdom, he says, because God has predetermined to bless you and redeem you as you responded to the wooing of his Holy Spirit and you believed the gospel message that was preached in this tribulation period of time, which we talked about two weeks ago as well but where the gospel goes out to the known world at that time. Notice the second thing, is the status of these people. He says, come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Now the very fact he has blessed you with all spiritual blessings is one thing, but here the status is that you inherit something, and the reason you inherit something is because you are a member of the family and in this case, you're a member of the family of God, and you're a co-heir, a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. You inherit what is yours because by faith you became a joint heir with Christ, if we can borrow the Apostle Paul's thought in Romans 8. So the Father has blessed you, chosen to be part of his family, and because of that, you are those who inherit because you are the sons of God. Notice thirdly, the selectivity. Further, it says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. And that, again, emphasizes the personal selectivity of salvation. When God prepared the kingdom, it was for you that he prepared it. You were chosen. You who are the sheep. You were ordained to this. You are those whom the Father uh, put his love upon. And so you have the source, the status, the selectivity, and fourthly, the sovereignty. 
Let me tell you something. Those whom God calls and predestines are secure in the Father's hand, and God isn't going to lose any one of them. Hallelujah. There is no way that a Christian, a believer, now or in the tribulation period, can sin so grievously as to fall out of the omnipotent hand of the Father. This emphasizes the eternal covenant that God made with himself to redeem a people selected before the foundation of the world. So who are these sheep going into the kingdom? They're not just people who did good deeds with other people. These are people who knew, trusted in, believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, and then soon discovered that God chose them before the foundation of the world. And out of that choosing, he predestinated them to also the good works that he has before ordained that they should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. Now, if you're following me, some of you are sitting there and you're saying, where is Fletcher? Is he a Calvinist? Is he this? No, I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not an Arminianist. I'm not this. I'm a Biblicist, I hope, Okay. So you say, well, what about the free will? That's not what the text is dealing with. We'll, we'll deal with that when we preach on John 3.16. Is that fair enough? What he's talking about here is simply what we're trying to explain. Of course, a man chose to receive Christ just like you did, and the same will be true in the tribulation period. But no one can come to the Father, what? Except my spirit draws him. And it's the wooing of the Holy Spirit. Now let's move quickly. The pronouncement to the goats. What will happen to the goats who represent now, on the left, the unsaved Gentiles? Notice in verse 41. Then he will, in fact, I'm going to read down through there. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, you gave me no food. Thirsty, no drink. Stranger, did not welcome me. Naked, didn't clothe me. Sick, in prison, you did not visit me. Lord, when did we see hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, prison, did not minister? He will answer, truly I say, as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these shall go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So those words are awful words for us to hear. They're awful words for me to preach, but have nothing compared to what it's going to be like to those unsaved who are alive at that time, when the king returns in all of his glory, all the holy angels with him, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ with him, all the Old Testament saints with him, millions upon millions, and then he sits on the throne of his glory, sheep on the right, goats on the left, Blessed are you, O my Father. Enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he says to those on the left, Depart from me. You're cursed. Into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Where he said in verse 30 of the same chapter, Cast into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. How do you even preach that without weeping? How do you hear it without weeping? Here we see that 
those goats who have rejected the message of the kingdom in the tribulation period go to that place prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels who fell and there was no place to redeem them. But men have chosen to identify in their rebellion at the God of this age. And they go to a place not even intended for them. For God created man for fellowship with himself. It's a terrifying truth. Go away into everlasting fire. Speaks of separation. Death is always separation. Eternal death is eternal separation. Depart from me. It speaks of association. Go with the devil and the, the demons, the fallen angels. Can you imagine being in hell for one minute? Can you imagine the demons screaming? Can you, can you just imagine the millions of the lostness of people? Tormented forever. It's a place of isolation. A place of darkness, it says. You ever just been in an absolutely dark place where it's so dark you can't see anything? I remember going on a field problem in Germany. I just thought of this over back in 1961. And you could, it was so dark in that German forest you couldn't see anything. And the way you marched, you held, the person put his rifle up on his right shoulder and then you took the, the end of that, that rifle and then you put your rifle on your shoulder and the person back and you just groped through. I remember the darkness, it was awful. It speaks of duration. It says everlasting. It speaks of affliction. It says of fire. Separation, association, isolation, duration, affliction. If you don't like to hear it, trust me, I don't like to preach it. So the sheep enter the kingdom. They enter the kingdom in their physical bodies. While the goats, the lost people, die immediately. And they go to the place prepared for the devil and the angels. You say, well, how is that death going to take place, Harry? The closest we can come is that same chapter in Zechariah 14. 9a and 12. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. And their tongues will rot in their mouth. Not my words. The words of God. And in that moment, the people on his left will be consumed instantaneously. They'll leave the earth. Only to come back later, by the way, another sermon another time. A thousand years later, they'll come back. And they'll stand at another judgment called the Great White Throne Judgment. Let's go to the last point, the perplexity of the judgment. This day of judgment has a lot of surprises to it. First of all, there's the surprise that there even is a judgment. You go out and ask 10 people today, do you, really, do you believe there's a final judgment where people will go to an eternal hell? I'd say probably 10 out of 10 will probably say, no, I don't believe that. 
All through life, they scoffed at the idea of a final judgment. They thought they could live and do whatever they wanted without any consequences. And then all of a sudden, they stand before the holy judge of the universe to give an account. What a shock. The relativist will find out things and truth were not relative. There is an absolute truth. There is an absolute standard. We all need to learn and answer the question, who sets the rules? Society doesn't set it. Culture doesn't set it. I don't care if everyone else believes it. If the word of God doesn't affirm it, it's a lie out of the pit of hell. It's absolute truth. The relativist will be blown out of his mind. The narcissist who thought all of life revolved around the big me. Life was all about me. To hell with the rest of you. Look out for number one. He's going to find out he's not the center and never was of the universe. I can't imagine. The surprise at the standard of the judgment. <coughs> it's the surprise at the standard of the judgment. Because you'll notice in this text, it's based upon how we treat others, especially others who are in distress in special need. That seems to be the six areas he talks about. Did you notice in the text that the sheep were not surprised that they entered into the kingdom? They don't say, oh, I didn't know I was going into the kingdom. No, they knew. They were sheep. Just like I say, do you know? You're a sheep. If you're a sheep, you'll say, yeah, I know. What well, they were surprised at was the standard that Jesus used. That's what surprised him. And the importance of how they treated other people, which they had long forgotten. Showing mercy is what Jesus points out. Just like many of you have done so many good things to people, so many kind acts. You've long forgotten it. You're not keeping a record, but guess who's keeping the record, friend? God is. And he will not forget one act of mercy that you have shown the goats will be even more surprised. They'll be surprised by God's sentence upon their sin. They'll be surprised by the reason for this fearful vindic. They'll be looking out for themselves without any thought of others. Me, me, me. And then the shock when they hear the Lord say, depart from me, you curse into the eternal fire. Prepared for the devil and its angels. I was hungry and I was thirsty and I was in prison and I was sick. Very frankly, you didn't give a damn. You just didn't care. Now we're introduced to a third group of people here. We've got the goats, the sheep. Now in verse 37, notice it says, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, uh-oh, third category, my brothers. You did it to me. Who are my brothers? Remember I said, tuck this little thought away to you back in the book of Joel 3, verses 2 and 12. As they treated my people Israel. 
Who are these brothers? I think these brothers are the ones we saw a few weeks ago in Revelation chapter 7. The 144,000, 12,000 from 12 tribes of Israel. And they had a special seal upon them. Because remember, all the Christians have been taken out of the world. And God sets these 144,000 sovereign. We don't know where they came from, except they're from the 12 tribes of Israel. God did it, puts a seal on the and he sends them throughout the whole world. And Matthew 24, 14 says, and then shall this gospel of the kingdom be preached in all the world. So that gospel has been, and they're throughout the world. And as people respond to these, my brethren, that's the basis of their judgment. And it takes you back to the upper room discourse in John chapter 15. And he says, the people of the world are going to hate you. Don't, don't fret. They hated me before they hated you. They're going to persecute you. They persecuted me before. They want to kill you. They're going to kill me. The servant is not above the master. And when you reject the message of the master, you reject the master. And that's what they've done. They've rejected. And then there's a lot of believers who are born again in that tribulation period that will suffer greatly. Thrown into prison. They don't have the mark of the beast. They can't buy or sell. They can't get food. They're going to be hungry. They're going to be thirsty. They're going to be sick. They can't get medicine. They don't have the mark of the beast. Inasmuch as you did it unto the least of these, my brethren... My sheep, beginning with the Jewish evangelist. You've done it unto me. That's Matthew 25. The sheep are not saved because they're fed, clothed, housed, and visited, but because they have been believed in Christ, and their salvation then showed evidence. The goats are not lost because they showed no mercy. It's because they asked for no mercy in order that they then could show mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God has been merciful to you, my friend. And he's been merciful to you, not only to show his grace and mercy and love upon you, but that you will show that same love, kind mercy to other people. Get out of your little clique. Get out of your little comfort zone. Get on down to the homeless. Go see the sick. Go to the prison. Help those in distress. Give them the gospel. Show them mercy. I'm a little wound up. <laughs> Notice the surprise at the length of the sentence. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Some may take issue with the biblical doctrine of eternal punishment in hell, but Jesus was never a relativist. He was an absolutist. The passage teaches that after the second coming of Christ, the Lord Jesus will bring all the Gentiles who have lived through the tribulation period into judgment. Those Gentiles who have accepted the messenger of the messengers will honor the millennial kingdom with those saved Jews who have trusted in Christ. The unbelieving will go into eternal punishment for rejecting the message. The judgment reflects the righteousness, justice, mercy, and glory of our great God. It is a righteousness that is based upon faith, but manifests itself in actions and faithfulness and watchfulness. Key thought, Matthew 24, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. So in conclusion, number one, remember this, it's faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. 
It is faith alone that saves. No amount of good deeds. You can go out and show mercy to every person in the world. It won't save you. It is faith alone that saves. By grace are you saved through faith. Have you trusted in Christ and accepted the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord? Simple as that. If you haven't, you're lost. You're bound for hell. But the faith that saves is never alone. True faith always manifests righteousness that, that is a mark of a true believer. It's always the product of a life that demonstrates the reality of the life. For it's true, and for by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, as any man shall boast. But it's also true, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath previously ordained, that we should walk in them. By this shall all men know you're my disciples, if you love one another. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, you closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Proof of his manifest love. In the routines of life, caring for those who need mercy. It's a good time to examine yourself whether you're in the faith. Thirdly, by nature we're keepers. Through the new nature we're givers. Now I'm concerned about this, especially with our younger generation. Some of you who are just a little bit younger. Some of you just kind of getting through school or a teenager or getting through college. Because we live in an utterly indulgent society. A recent study at Duke University revealed that when asked in a survey of its graduates, what do you want to be when you grow up? Three things were money, power, and things. They seemed to be only concerned for themselves. Their mandate to the faculty was teach us how to be a money-making machine. They seemed to have no concern for other people's pain or suffering or eternity. In these post-Christian times, most people pursue their own personal prosperity and are too selfish to serve others. They always thought that the one who dies with the most toys wins. And they love the toys, but they neglect the truth that the one with the most toys still dies. And there is a judgment. Might be a good thing to reflect on who we are, what we're doing, what we've done in regards to the Roman Catholic Church calling these the six corporate acts of mercy to feed the hungry, to give water to the thirsty, clothe the naked, to shelter the homeless, to minister to the sick, to visit those in prison. The gospel is good news of mercy to the undeserving. The symbol of the religion of Jesus is the cross, not the scales. Trust me, I don't want the scales. I want mercy. Because that's what I need. That's what you need. I beg of you. If you're not sure, not in the literal context of the tribulation period, but if you're not sure you're one of those sheep that the good shepherd has found, sought out, saved you, please be open your mind, heart, trust in Christ alone this morning. We'll be around afterwards. Sometimes I hang out in that little private room out there. I'd love to talk to you if you want to talk in private. We're glad to come to your home, meet you for call. All of us would. Don't delay. Don't procrastinate. Too much is at stake. So, Holy Spirit, do that which we cannot do.